This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. I'm grateful for all of your pastors. Bill and Sherry and Linda, myself, my wife, have been friends for 30, over 30 years. Deeply grateful. I have two daughters, two sons-in-law, and six grandchildren in this church. So we are deeply grateful for you. This morning I will speak on trusting God in the darkness. If you turn to Isaiah 50 verse 10, that's going to be a jumping off verse for this message. The subject Bill's asked me to speak about today is on battling spiritual doubt. So by necessity, this message will be topical, and it'll assume some knowledge of Scripture that you, might, that you would have, and I'll be sharing personally about my own struggles in a season of doubt and what brought an end to that doubt for me. Now, we know that spiritual doubt can have many causes. Some of the causes are self-induced. When we neglect the spiritual disciplines or the corporate disciplines like gathering together to hear God's Word preached as means of grace. But I want to speak today specifically on uh, doubt that is due to intense or prolonged trials. And I know there are some here in a group this size, some of you have faced or are facing significant trials right now with great fortitude and faith, and I'm sure there's much we could learn from you. I'm also aware that this one message will necessarily leave much left unsaid. That's why you have pastors, that's why you have people around you to care for you. For the Christian, faith ultimately comes down to two fundamental issues. Number one, is there a God? Is there a sovereign God who rules this world? And then secondly, is this God trustworthy? Is this God so thoroughly good and so personally involved in my life that I can trust Him completely with that life? Isaiah 50.10 says this, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Let's read that again. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of, the, of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Hebrews 1.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. For those who come to him must first of all believe that he exists. There's the sovereignty of God part and that he rewards or that he is the rewarder of those who earnestly seek him or that he is good. He is sovereign and he is good. That is the basis for a vital living faith. Now my personal struggle with doubt revolved around two main issues and this is a few years ago, culminating in a particular event. First of all, as a dad, I have five children. I have four daughters and one son. And I struggled watching my two youngest daughters live unmarried through their 20s into their 30s. Uh, they were both Christians who followed the Lord faithfully in the relationships throughout their teen years in college and beyond. Yet they remained unmarried into their 30s. One was married just this last spring at age 35. The other continues to remain unmarried. That was a challenge for my faith over a prolonged period of time. And alongside that was a struggle uh, during a long season of deaths and funerals. I'm in a small church in a small town, and we had a long season of deaths and funerals for, for nine family members and friends over a 16-month period. In one two-week period, uh, my father and two of my first cousins died, one who was on our worship team. And except for my dad, all the others died earlier in life and some quite tragically. And both of those caused challenges to my faith, but the culmination came when my, uh, my younger sister, who's 18 months younger than me, she has five children, 
uh, when she experienced the death of her, of her youngest son. He was 26 years old. She was told the news at midnight Christmas Eve. And the timing and manner by which she had to be told was simply horrible. And also, it wasn't the first heartbreaking and life-altering tragedies that she's experienced in her life. And here's the thing. Here was the issue for me. She's one of the most godly, and this isn't my evaluation. This would be people in our church as well. She's one of the most godly, sacrificial, and compassionate people I know. And she prayed for her children from a young age. She was faithful to bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. She was a godly example. And when her youngest son died, she had no assurance that he was a believer. Suffering in the accompanying darkness comes unannounced into our lives. Some suffering is acute. Some other suffering is chronic and drawn out over months and even years. We experience sickness and death. We experience loss of family and friends. Our children at times, when we get older, our children drift from the faith. We have unfulfilled hopes and seemingly unanswered prayers. There are the cumulative effects of setbacks, betrayals, and disappointments. The seeming disconnect between our labors and fruitfulness at times. And all of these take their toll on our faith. And as we get older, as we get older, sometimes our struggles increase as the sun sets on earlier hopes and dreams we had in our lives. Yet Isaiah 50:10 says, "Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God." That's what it says. The question is, how do we do that in the darkness? How do we do that when we have no light? How do we trust in the name of the Lord our God while walking in darkness? How can we trust that God is faithful when the immediate circumstances communicate that he might be the exact opposite? That's what we're going to look at today. How does one find faith in the darkness? And here's the reality. You cannot fake faith. You can't fake it. So we're going to look at three things. Under three headings this morning, this topic, we're going to look at the stark reality of inescapable suffering. We're going to look at doubt as a suspension between faith and unbelief. And then thirdly, we're going to look at darkness, faith, and the name of the Lord. So I'm going to lead you down a path. It might be a little bit dark at first, but I'm going to lead you out to how you can trust the Lord in the darkness. So let's pray and ask God to speak to all of our hearts. I need his help and we need, I'm sure some here are right now needing to hear his word. Father, I pray that you will bring faith into those who are walking through darkness. I help you, pray that you'll help me to faithfully speak your truths in your word. And Lord, that through your word, Lord, all of our faith might grow in you in all seasons of life. And we pray that in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So the stark reality of inexplicable suffering, in spite of many, and I don't want this to be totally dark, in spite of many, the presence of joy and blessings in this world. And there's, listen, this this morning, this was joy, was it not? Seeing these babies up here and dedicating them. But in spite of the presence of joys and blessings, our world is often a dark place. That's a reality. And we know the reason why. Ever since the fall in the garden, we live in a fallen world. And part of church life is assisting one another as we go through various trials and tribulations. We provide comfort and care. We counsel and make connections with God's Word. If sin is clearly the cause, we will encourage people. uh, We will tell people about reaping and sowing, encourage people towards repentance. We remind people that God even uses suffering at times to help us to grow for our good. And we discern links and we counsel and share promises from God's Word. But here's the question. What about the suffering that has no apparent reason or purpose? What about that kind of suffering? What about intense pain that seems both inexplicable 
and fruitless. What do we do then? There's no clear reason. There's no clear, clear reason that we can see for this pain. Well, Job 1.1 begins, Job begins with this verse in Job 1.1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. How would you like that to be said about you? That man was, he wasn't perfect, but he was blameless, relatively speaking, and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. What a statement. That's the Lord's evaluation. Yet Job suffered terribly and he never knew why. We get to look, peek behind the scenes a little bit as we study the book of Job, but Job never knew why. And Job's friends had no category for inexplicable, unexplained suffering. For them, if the world is ruled by a sovereign and just God, then life is solely a matter of direct cause and effect. You do this, this happens. You don't do this, this happens. They saw direct cause and effect for everything that took place. So in their minds, this was true for all suffering, including Job's. So they followed what is called, I think Dane Ortland calls it, the retribution principle. In other words, you always reap what you sow. So with this one trick category for suffering, their words and counsel became thrusting swords of accusation that merely increased the suffering for righteous Job. You see, they had to find a reason for Job's suffering in Job. And they had to find that because deep down, watching Job suffer for no apparent reason was a threat to them and their faith. That's why they had to find the reason. Their whole worldview is at stake. Because if God allowed suffering in Job's life without a clear cause, that meant what happened to Job might also happen to them. And then how could they de- deal with such a God? And that's our first temptation too. And people suffer, we look for the reason why. That's not wrong. But in Job's case, there was no apparent reason. So they would say, how are you doing, Job, today? They would say, just as you deserve. Confess your sins and be restored, Job. And there is chapter after chapter of that in the book of Job. Job's friends have grasped that unless God is just and fair, the the moral fabric of the universe will disintegrate. Now, Elizabeth Elliot, most all of you probably have heard of Elizabeth Elliot, who lost her husband, Jim Elliot, 1957, I believe, in Ecuador. He and four other men were martyred for the faith, trying to take the, the, trying to take the gospel to a tribe of, of, of natives there in Ecuador. And in her biography, Becoming Elizabeth Elliot, we read these words. She understood what I just mentioned when she came to America. Listen to these words that she wrote in this book. Her biographer wrote, Upon returning to the churches in the U.S. after her husband was martyred, Elizabeth Elliot detested the shallow, God-justifying platitudes of many who sought to comfort her in her suffering. Their answers, like the answers of Job's friends, were often a means to prop up and protect their own flimsy faith that couldn't stand the test of inexplicable suffering. Because if this abhorred suffering could happen to her, a mother of a daughter of 18 months and a husband who was seeking to spread the gospel, if that suffering could happen to her for no apparent reason, then it could happen to them. So the words they shared with her was more to protect their faith than to minister to her. Christopher Ashe writes these words in his commentary on Job. We need to be honest and face the kind of world we live in. Why does God allow these things? 
Why does he do nothing to put things right? These things. And why, on the other hand, do people who could care less about God and justice thrive? Why do we live in this kind of a world? That's what Psalm 73 talks about as well, where David said, or where Asaph says, I almost fell, I almost slipped. Because I looked at people who didn't care about God, yet they seemed like everything was fine with them. And Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 12, one writes these lines. You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Don't you love that? Why does the way of the wicked prosper? You're always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak to you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? And then Elizabeth Elliot just sums it all up in one line. She says, I've read somewhere that anyone who is not confused is very badly informed. <laughs> I think she gets the truth. Here's the truth. At times God allows intense, inexplicable suffering in life, and he has not told us why. The suffering has nothing to do with sin, even though it can. There's times when the suffering has nothing to do with sin. The suffering is not directly proportional to a need for spiritual growth. In other words, Job-like suffering is more common than we may think. And that type of suffering brings the question, questions about God's character. It brings the questions about his goodness and his fairness, which brings doubt into play in our lives. So let's talk about doubt as a suspension between faith and unbelief. Deep, prolonged suffering is uniquely challenging for the Christian. Why is that? We believe God is, suffer, is sovereign. We believe, we know God is sovereign. Or he's not God, right? We believe God is sovereign. We're not deists. We don't believe in the blind watchmaker who, who, who created the world and then moved off somewhere. We believe that God is sovereign in life. We know everything that comes to us comes through his hand. The world doesn't have to deal with that kind of knowledge, but we do. Christopher Ashe writes, There is a pain for believers that gives suffering a unique sharpness. Suffering is a common experience of the human race, and yet suffering touches a believer, believer with a sharper and uniquely piercing pain. The worshiper truly believes God is sovereign. He or she really believes that the living God is in control of the world. And so when suffering comes, it must be God who ultimately sends it. After all, he is in control, is he not? It is God who is in some sense doing the hurting. And I know we're getting very close to a line right here. He goes on and writes, And yet surely God is just, isn't he? This is the added pain for the believer living in a world of undeserved suffering. For undeserved suffering is a threat to the moral foundations of the universe. Either God is not in control or he is not fair. And that causes the believer deep and sharp perplexity. Have you ever struggled with that? He's either, either he isn't sovereign or he's not fair. And then he goes on and writes, There are believers with a clear conscience, no hidden sin, trusting in God for forgiveness and walking in the light with him, and yet who suffer terribly. It is a problem. But it is important for us to notice that it is a problem only for the believer. We struggle with this more than the world around us. Here are some of the statements I've heard from believers in the midst of deep suffering. 
first person said, not only did I lose my loved one, I also lost my best friend, meaning God, who I have leaned on in prayers and hopes with promises from his word all these years. And yet they were all dashed. So I not only lost this loved one, I lost a relationship with him. Second statement, what makes suffering harder, this person said, is I know too much. Meaning I know God's sovereign. This didn't catch him off guard. This didn't happen by chance. I know he's sovereign. That's the problem. I know too much. This tragedy had to at least be allowed by him. That's tough, isn't it? Then the last statement. <clears throat> if a human being did what God has allowed, we would throw him in prison. It's pretty stark. So what about doubt? When we go through these times of darkness when there is no light. Well, first of all, struggling with doubt is a reality as we, leave as we live between the resurrection and the consummation. As we live when promises have been made by God, but promises have yet to be fully fulfilled. That's where we're living our lives right now. We are living there. He will fulfill all of his promises, but we don't see it right now. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That was written in Job 1. Not Job eleven twenty one or 31. Job went through a lot of struggles. It often happens in trials. Right away we feel faith. But over time, the struggles come. They did for Job. They do for us. So first of all, struggling with doubt is a reality in a fallen world. Number two, doubt is not, this is the key point. Listen, if you're struggling with doubt right now and you're in the midst of suffering or you've had chronic suffering and you're struggling with doubt, this this point is the most important point of all. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. In the book of Jude, just a one-chapter book right before Revelation, Jude warns against all kinds of evil, blasphemous, scoffers, ungodly boasters, grumblers, and malcontents. He warns against the vice of men. He uses almost a whole, his whole little book to warn against all kinds of evil people. And then he writes these, this word, in ver, this short phrase in verse 22. After writing all of that, he says, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Don't have mercy on scoffers, boasters, ungodly men, grumblers, malcontents. Don't have mercy on them, but have mercy. Don't have anything to do with them, but have mercy on those who doubt. Isn't that interesting? Have mercy on these people. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith, not doubt. Doubt is not sin. It is a wavering between what we believe about God that seems to be contradicted but we are, what we are experiencing at this time. That's doubt. We're wavering between what we believe and what we know about God that seems to be con contradicted right now by what we're experiencing. Doubt has not come to a conclusion about God. The, how, the heart of doubt is a divided heart. Doubt has its reservations. It hangs back. Doubt is a suspension between faith and unbelief. Back in our town, we had a swinging bridge that went across the river. On this end was a pillar, on that end was a pillar, and in between it just swung when you go across it. It swings back and forth. That's doubt. Over there is unbelief. Here's faith. I want to believe. I'm not where I don't believe. I'm wavering back and forth. That, that is what doubt is. 
Unbelief, however, is no longer wavering. The verdict has been decided in unbelief. The debate is over. It is a willful refusal to believe. Unbelief is the consequence of a settled choice. You've decided, I don't believe. That's not doubt. Unbelief is a deliberate response to God's truth. To believe is to be of one mind. To disbelieve is to be of another mind. So doubt is not unbelief. But, point four on this is, but doubt while not unbelief, if not dealt with honestly, will lead to unbelief over time. It will lead to unbelief. Doubt is not always fatal, but it is always serious. Doubt, if not answered satisfactorily, will eventually lead away from God into sin and unbelief. And here's the, here's the issue. The special temptation to doubt in suffering comes from the fact that we feel someone should answer for this suffering. But if no one, if we can't find anybody answerable, then God must be the one who answers. That's where we get to. And then the temptation comes to accuse God and malign his character. C.S. Lewis upon losing his wife of just a few years to cancer, wrote a book called A Grief Observed. And it's his raw recollection. He wrote it while he's walking through suffering. So he's just raw. Here's what I'm dealing with. And he writes these words in the midst of this suffering. He said, look, it's not that I think I'm in danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there is no God after all. But, rather, so this is what God is really like. This is what he's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. He wasn't worried about becoming an atheist again or an agnostic. He knew there was a God. He was just, his fear was believing terrible things about him. Os Guinness writes, The temptation to doubt does not come in not believing God, but in believing what is not God. The danger is that we press judgment too far and our speculation creates such a distorted picture of God that we cannot continue to believe in good faith. We create this monster in our minds and who would believe in him? And then he writes, believing the wrong thing is always halfway to believing nothing. Our misrepresentations of God are so pathetically inadequate or monstrously hideous that to believe in him any longer is unnecessary repugnant. So in the end, doubt, if not dealt with, will either drive us to distort the image of God into a monster we can never trust or to shrink him into an image of our own making and to trust in a God who doesn't truly exist. And I've seen both in suffering. That's doubt. So let's talk about coming out of the darkness, finding light in the midst of the darkness. When there is no light. So let's talk about out of darkness. Faith in the name of the Lord. In God's kindness. And this was over a couple of years. In God's kindness. A significant turning point for me came when I read this quote. In an obituary on Facebook. Probably the only good thing I ever got from Facebook in my life. <laughs> by a man who posted it there. Who would lost his daughter. 20 some year old daughter with a young child. And it's from the book God in the Dark. And I've sent the resources of the books that helped me. And also all these quotes. Uh, to your pastor so you can ask them for them. But here's, this is from Oz Guinness. He wrote a book on struggling with doubt. And the last, 
the last section of the book is on suffering. There's lots of reasons we can struggle with doubt, but he's talking at the end about suffering. And here's the quote he gave, and it resonated so much with me. Because again, you can't fake faith. We either believe or we don't. We either pray believing there's a God who hears, or we, and that's one of the first things that goes, or we'll stop praying and say, ah. Here's the quote that helped me so much. Suffering is the most acute trial that faith can face. And the questions it raises are the sharpest, the most insistent, and the most damaging that faith will meet. Can faith bear the pain and still trust God, suspending judgment and resting in the knowledge that God is there, God is good, and God knows best? Or will the pain and suffering be so great that only meaning will make it endurable, so that reason will be pressed further and further, and judgments must be made? I will not believe unless I can figure this out. But if the Christian's faith is to be itself and let God be God at such times, it must suspend judgment and say, Father, I do not understand you, but I trust you. Now, when necessary, we must be willing to suspend judgment in the face of inexplicable suffering. And part of that is rejecting something that one of the writers calls keyhole theology. Keyhole theology comes from history when doors were locked with skeleton keys and you pulled the key out and you looked through the keyhole and you could see what was going on inside. And historically, some people were found guilty because maids or butlers looked through a keyhole, saw a crime going on, and testified against them in their trials and they were convicted of their crimes. But keyhole theology doesn't serve well that way. Keyhole theology is, draw, is drawing overarching and false conclusions about a whole situation from some partial information we really do see. So when you look to the keyhole at your circumstance, and you look at your circumstance, you're always looking through a keyhole. You're never seeing everything, but the challenge is, is to want to extrapolate what God is doing and why from the little bit that you see. Or maybe more than a little bit. And once you see something, it's hard not to try to figure out everything from that little part that you're looking at. That's keyhole theology. And so Os Guinness says we must be willing to suspend judgment in our most difficult times of darkness, recognizing we do not know everything as God knows. We do not know everything as God knows. Job didn't, and neither do we. Elizabeth Elliot didn't know everything that God knows. People tried to tell her, here's what God was doing, and she didn't help. We must be willing to suspend judgment. We know these types of verses. God is a, not a mere man that we should be like, that he, he should be like him. He's not a man. Even in our best, we see dimly through a glass. We know that. And his ways are infinitely higher than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts. We must admit the known facts that we see are against God, but the known facts are not all the facts. We've got to, we've got to understand that. Now, I know I've not totally helped you at this point. Here's some thoughts. Number one, that doesn't mean we don't seek to understand when we're going through suffering. It doesn't mean we just say, well, I'm going to throw reason aside. I'm not going to try to understand any of this. No, there's much suffering we'll understand, but some of it we won't. It doesn't mean that we're not to seek to understand. But there are times when we have to suspend reason, okay? Because we're not going to understand. He hasn't told us why. 
We don't understand why, particularly in the most excruciating suffering. Secondly, that does not mean denying the emotional pain of our suffering. It's not asking us to do that. Denying reality is a mark of make-believe, not living faith. It's make-believe. And there's a reason that 30 or 40% of the Psalms are laments. They're there for us in a fallen, broken world. Number three, suspending judgment in suffering is not irrational. But only if we know why we trust God enough to suspend judgment now. We just can't say, I'm going to suspend judgment. We have to know why we're suspending judgment. Why we're going to trust God. We have to know that. Because Isaiah 50.10 says, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust, not just suspending, suspending judgment. No, let him trust in the name, look at that word, name of the Lord and rely on his God. So suspending judgment and suffering is not irrational, but only if we know why we trust God enough to suspend judgment in our suffering. Next point is this. We can suspend judgment in darkness because our God is not merely God, but he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference. He's not just some generic God. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our God has proven it his infinite and unchanging goodness once and for all at Calvary through his son on the cross. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might be the righteousness of God. The one who had no sin, while I was yet a sinner, now when I earned it, Christ died for me. God so loved the world that he gave his son the truth of God's goodness was proven on Calvary in time and history 2,000 years ago. It is a historical fact. Through his son, Jesus Christ, he made the truth of his goodness unassailable. We need not question God's goodness because on Calvary 2,000 years ago, he proved his goodness once and for all. That's the reality. Our God being that God makes all the difference in the dark. And you see in the New Testament, they just don't call him God. They call him our God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how they knew him. He's not just Yahweh. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I can suspend judgment here in this darkness because it is darkness. Because God has proven he is infinitely good there in Christ. That's what I can gaze on in the darkness. Doubts about the Father's goodness are silenced by the Son. If you're going through suffering right now, if you're going through a period of chronic suffering, or if you're experiencing intense suffering right now, and it is dark, you don't know, you can't answer why, you're trying to figure out why, then look at everything through the lens of Calvary. Look at the current difficult, emotionally painful situations and circumstances you're going through, go back and look at it through that lens, through the lens of Jesus Christ. Writer wrote, how can I be sure that God is there and that God is good? And I think this is critical. It's answered satisfactorily only in Jesus Christ. 
any proof of God's existence or argument in, any, in favor of his goodness that ends anywhere else is bound to be inconclusive or wrong. Amen. That is the final proof. So when I will tell my sister, that's the final proof. I don't know why this happened. Why did it happen then? Why did it happen that night? I mean, it's terrible to happen in the first place. But why that night? Why that way? I never understand it. But I know that God loves me. Because he proved it once for all. Let unanswered questions about God's goodness in the darkness drive you to the place where his goodness is most clearly and unassailably displayed. Job returned to faith through a majestic revelation of God. We have been given a much greater revelation of God's goodness once for all through the crucified Savior, God's only Son, Jesus Christ. And if you look back in Isaiah 50, if you got your finger there, look who is calling us to trust God in the darkness. This is the third servant song in the book of Isaiah. Who's calling us to trust God in the darkness? It's the suffering servant himself who verse 5 says obeyed God fully, who verse 6 says he's the one who gave his back to those who strike, the one who gave his cheeks to those who pulled out his beard, the one who hid not his face from disgrace and spitting, the one who set his face like a flint, knowing ultimately he would not be put to shame. That's who's calling us to do this. If it was anybody else, we would say, oh, who are you? This is a suffering servant himself who calls us, the one who experienced separation and darkness from his father, that we might never be separated from the love of God. That's our light in the darkness. The Isaiah 53 suffering servant who displayed the inexplicable goodness of God to us on the cross. Only the inexplicable love of God explains such inexplicable suffering of the sinless Son of God, on our behalf. I don't understand the suffering, but I don't understand his love either. I will trust in his love. Our God, the name of our God, trust in the name. What is the name of our God? Our God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that makes all the difference in suffering. All the difference. So, I can suspend judgment now in the darkness because knowledge of that love in Christ puts to rest any doubts about the goodness of my heavenly fathers towards me. person wrote, there are facts in, of life in a fallen world that we will never be able to explain, but must never explain away. Faith, however, can suspend judgment on these questions, for there is no question we cannot leave with God. And this is so true, if he's the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can leave those questions with him. And so we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame anywhere else. I dare not trust anywhere else. I dare not trust the sweetest, sweetest frame, but what? Holy lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely fa face, I rest where? On his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my, gale, my anchor holds not in this world, but within the veil. Because it's on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Ellen Vaughn, who wrote... 
Elizabeth Elliot's biography, Becoming Elizabeth Elliot, read her journals from a young age on. Because Elizabeth Elliot journaled from a young age, and she's reading her journals. She writes in the epilogue of the book, I was reading her journals as a young preteen, teenager. She says, turning the thin pages of Elizabeth Elliot's journals, I knew the end of that story. The young, I knew the end of that story. The young Elizabeth Elliot writing did not. I wanted to warn her. To shout across the decades to prepare for the storm. Get ready. She wanted, she's reading these diaries of the young girl for hope and everything she's looking forward to. And she wanted to scream out, get ready, the hurricane is coming. And then she writes, it's mercy that none of us knows what is coming. And it is, isn't it? But then she quotes these words from Elizabeth Elliot's journal later on. Elizabeth Elliot wrote these words. She lost three husbands, by the way. She wrote these words. I belong to God. He is faithful. His words are true. And transformation, the ultimate springtime already planted, is coming. Folks, it's coming. And I pray the Lord will keep you in faith until faith becomes sight and we see him face to face and there will be no more sadness, no more sorrows, no more tears. No more having to say goodbyes. All because the one was hung on the cross in our place. Because the inexplicable love of God towards us, once sinners, now redeemed through his son. Thank you. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.